0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. Today, we're gonna be talking about the Culture Code Champions, seven steps to scale and succeed in your business. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in identifying disruptive trends and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that our guest today is Bill Higgins. Bill is an authority on corporate culture, is the Forbes book author of Culture Code Champion, Seven Ways to Scale and Succeed in Your Business, and he recently launched the iTunes new and noteworthy Culture Code Champion podcast. So in our session today, we're going to talk about the fact that people are the crux of any organization's success, but many businesses don't take any intentional steps to create an energetic positive work environment that spirals people's attitudes upwards rather they often create them to either remain flat or spiral downward yet the right culture can help you create a psycho proof business that can grow even during the industry's bust cycles that inflict economic pain on our competitors. And this bill couldn't be more relevant than right now, as we're seeing the confluence of many trends uh, that are causing significant pain in our economy and in our world. So, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and Mustang Engineering before we join before we jump into the combination conversation about bad company cultures.
2: Sure will. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. For me, it goes back to uh, being a Boy Scout, and uh, I loved scouting a lot. Uh, I like the fact that it was moral and ethical. You were talking about about morals and ethics, I think, every week in in the scouting program. Uh, My parents had divorced. I had a single mom, and uh, really, those adult leaders were my surrogate fathers. From scouting, I ended up going to West Point United States Military Academy on a congressional appointment and just loved it there. (laughs) But the first day, first day is pretty traumatic. They just had their first day for the class of 2024. And it's a day they'll never forget. For me, uh, I met an upperclassman and he says, drop your bags. Of course, I set them down had to pick them up, slam them down. And then he asked me, are leaders born or made? And in high school, it seemed like all leaders were born. They were either good athletes or super smart. So I said, born, sir. And I had to drop for 20 push-ups. While I was doing <laughs> that, I realized the answer must be different. So he said, are leaders born or made? I said, made, sir. And he said, absolutely, or there'd be no reason for West Point. They want to take in good material and train and build leaders. And I think that's something neat for your people to understand is part of the job of leaders is to train and build what we call leaders of character throughout an organization. I went in the Army, ended up being an Airborne Ranger, was an honor graduate of the Army Ranger School. Uh, General Dave Petraeus was in my Ranger class and also on the soccer team with me at West Point. But I've been around some good leaders for a long time. And when I got out of the Army, I went into the offshore oil patch in Houston, Texas. And this is doing offshore oil platforms. And at that time, they were in about 100 foot of water out in the the Gulf of Mexico. And I was just amazed. This industry, there was no book on how to do it. They were learning as they went. But I didn't like the fact that they weren't taking care of people at all. And as the oil price would go up and down, they would hire and fire people. And it was so different than in the army where you had these people like in the Rangers, you were just a gung-ho team and you stayed together. We were moving people in and out all the time. One of the things, Maureen, that I think would be really interesting is the fact that we went through a number of downturns and so this economic downturn that the rest of the world is seeing right now we had a couple of those in the oil patch after i started my company and i mean they were so bad uh 30 of the oil company would get laid off and that would trickle down through everybody else there were foreclosures on every street we had friends that had to move out of texas to get a job 1,200 savings and loans went under. So it sounds similar to what's happening right now. And it's going to keep happening. And it's going to keep happening. And I'll tell you what's happening in a downturn is you see the corporate spots of whatever company you're part of. And so there's a lot of shakeup that happens because really good people may look at their leadership and not like how they're reacting in this huge pandemic downturn, economic downturn that we're in right now. And that was the same thing that happened in the oil patch. The reason we went and started our own engineering firm was because we wanted to build a firm that didn't hire and fire depending on what the oil price was. Sounds pretty impossible. We called it no-fate leadership. Sort of after uh, the Terminator movie, where Sarah Connors carves in that tabletop. There's no fate that the future is gonna be what it is. You can change the future. We felt we had no fate leadership. We weren't gonna have to go down uh, when the industry did. Try not to laugh, Maureen, but uh, when we started, we were were (laughs) at the end of a downturn, and we were like four years from the end of the downturn. We ended up working for Metro, the bus company. We worked for Uncle Ben's Rice. We were doing compressor stations, everything but offshore for about a year and a half because we said, hey, we're not gonna let our people go and we'll go find something to do. But imagine people looking at that leadership and saying, man, they they wanna take care of me. They're doing whatever it will take to help me.
1: I think, Bill, that's part of the point. And you, you talk about it as culture and what I hear is absolutely culture and action that the leadership team has a set of values and you're going to put your action behind it and take the steps that often we we as consultants say, you know, stick to your core purpose. And it sounds like a lot of your core purpose is is keeping the team together so you can continue to meet customer needs that will fluctuate And ultimately get back to the offshore oil platforms.
2: Right. And the the thing that bothers me and it probably bothers a lot of leaders is you're creating this culture, but you can't spoon feed it to your people. People need to take their own responsibility and their own accountability for engaging in the culture and engaging with the leadership. Don't say, hey, give me culture. You've got to engage and be part of it. So one of the things that we pushed really hard was cross-training. And so right now when everybody's working from home and you're over Zoom or whatever, how can you be doing some cross-training? We wanted, it's like in the the Rangers, everybody knew each other's jobs. So if somebody went down, another person could step right in. We created an engineering firm where we cross trained across the departments and disciplines, even in HR to where everybody knew those jobs. And that starts to pull you together because now you understand how the rubber meets the road, but you're getting engaged and you're making yourself more valuable because if if you know other people's jobs, you're more adaptable, more flexible, you can do more. And so in a downturn, you can really help pull the load for the management team.
1: It, it makes a lot of sense, especially right now as we're looking at people potentially getting ill, some people opting out to uh, retirement or staying home to take care of kids that can't go to school. It, it seems like we will, we are and will continue to see a level of attrition that this cross training is required for organizations to continue to serve their clients and and their people effectively without a without disruption
2: right and what what you're seeing happen is they're letting some people go and other people are having to pick up those jobs and then I go, oh, well, maybe I didn't need that third person doing that. And so what happens in a downturn and what we try to do in every downturn is we took notes on things that we did to what do what we call plugging holes in the bucket. Where's all the places that money's going out? What staff do you have that you don't need? And take notes on these things that you're getting rid of right now. Okay. And then
1: when you have those
2: notes, what you want to do is when the good times come back, and and this is the game changer, if you can stay lean in the good times, you'll go right through the next downturn. And that was the key to our no fate leadership. We took those notes and then in the good times, we didn't get fat.
1: Thank you, Bill. So you've talked about cross-training and staying lean in good times. Can you say a little bit more about staying lean? Because I think while that that is a nice aspiration, many organizations can get bogged down by all the opportunities that they can take when the money's coming in.
2: I, th- I think that's one of the challenges is to not just add staff. Is there a way to use other people and cross-train them and challenge them a little bit more? One of the things that people can definitely be working on while they're at the house is working on their repeatable process. How do we set our systems up to where we have a repeatable, you know, use go-bys, use the way you've done it before? Can we make it very repeatable to where it's predictable, Because if you have a repeatable process, it's easier to cross-train people. And the other thing that we did in that repeatable process is we built an entire company on squeezing handoffs everywhere. There's 30% cost and schedule available in every handoff that happens throughout the day. So squeezing handoffs, and that means that the If you're going to give something to somebody, you've talked to them ahead of time, you know what day you're going to give it to them, you know what format it's going to be in, they know it's coming. So it doesn't go and sit on their desk or sit in their inbox for four or five days. Huge delta when you start squeezing those handoffs. But the other thing that we were talking about is, is busting silos. And the first thing to go when you go into a huge downturn like we're in is the silos are busted. And everybody wants to know what's going on. The communication is the best it's ever been. Everybody's talking to leaders. Leaders are talking to the people that are at the house. And that's your best opportunity to start implementing a new intentional culture. While everybody's listening very attentively, the silos are busted. And you've got the communication to really start moving them in the direction you'd like to.
1: So... That means right now. Well, we've got folks who are working from home. I worked with a client last week and part of their leadership team. And one of the questions was, now that we are working from home and how we used to communicate and how we used to get our work done is disrupted, it's a great opportunity, exactly as you're talking about, to be intentional about how we work and who, who we are, how we are with one another so that we can get the best results for our clients.
2: Yes, because I think when you can be face-to-face with a person, everybody's lazier. And now that they can't be face-to-face, they have to work the process more. If you can document that now while you're apart, when you come back together, don't lose that. (laughs) Keep that leanness. Keep squeezing those handoffs. Keep that repeatable process. And you'll be a different company when you come back
1: so i 'd like to I think go into this after break, but the idea that many companies were very focused on lean just in time, and they squeezed a lot out of a lot of quote fat out of their processes and Then, when we got hit with the pandemic, what they also squeezed out was resilience they weren 't able to respond when something took a supplier out or uh, again someone got sick so i 'd be interested in hearing how you can squeeze handoffs and bust silos and yet still enable the organization to be highly responsive. Let's start that conversation and then we'll continue it after break.
2: Okay. No, that's that's definitely the challenge. And uh, I think a lot of the, the lean just-in time when all of a sudden the entire economy goes down and your suppliers can't deliver and you're not holding on to inventory, then mm-hmm. it's total total scramble mode.
1: <laughs> and my assumption is that also ties into culture. So as we go on break, I'm going to encourage our listeners to think about what silos do you have right now that, that you can encourage your employees to work across those silos to get better results going forward forward for the long term, because my assumption is, well, we have this disruption right now, we will continue to have disruptions. And any advantage we build right now within our organizations allows us to just be better when we get the next uh, disruption, uh, whether it's small or large. So you are with Bill Higgs and Maureen Metcalf and we're talking about the culture code champions seven steps to scale and succeed in your business
3: become our friend on Facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice America
0: You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at com. Now back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership,
1: co-creating our future, we're talking about Culture Code Champions, Seven Steps to Scale and Succeed in Your Business. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Bill Higgs. So, Bill, before break, we started talking about the balance between leaning and optimizing processes and building business resilience. And, again, we've seen a little bit of that with the pandemic and the outcome of even if your business is highly effective, your suppliers may not be. So do you have any guidance for our listeners in how to navigate that kind of challenge that that my business is now interconnected in ways that I hadn't previously needed to manage?
2: I think one of the things that happens, it all comes down to people. So you can create these systems and these processes and a repeatable process. You can lean out your supply chain to get just in time. But then it comes down to people and relationships. And that's why I, I think the key thing for a strong business is to have an intentional effort on creating a differentiated culture and what we try to do is make it a people first culture. Because once you win the hearts and the minds of your people and you start to cross train and you, you're hiring adaptable, flexible people, when the rain falls and the storm hits, uh, they'll figure out a way for you. And what you want, I used to say, I, I want all eyes to be informed eyes. They need to know what's going on throughout the company and how you make money. And then when you have a downturn or things aren't working right, each one of them top to bottom in the organization knows the actions that they can take to start moving the needle in the right direction.
1: And so that's interesting to me, and I think this is going to get into your first steps about building a great culture. You come out of the military, and I think there is a misconception that this is top down. You're in charge, and you tell people what to do. (laughs) Uh, I'm guessing the teams aren't top down. Everyone's working as a very uh, collective, um, interconnected group.
2: when I get out of the Army, definitely misconception. People thought you gave orders, and people said, yes, sir, and jumped on it. And (laughs) uh, my five years in the Army, I gave one order. And a lot of times, like when I was a company commander of a combat engineer company during Vietnam, I didn't even wear my captain's bars. People knew who the leader was. Uh, they knew what the mission was, and it it came from, and it's the first step in building a, a great culture, is to open up the communication top to bottom in an organization. So even in the Army, you didn't really give orders. You got to know the chain of command, but you got to know down to the privates who were working in the motor pool or working in the field, and you got to know them as individuals, and we'd have a lot of cross communication to where there was mutual respect. So I might be a captain, but they could tell that I respected them as an individual. And what I've found is that all problems are communication problems. And I tell people, write that on the back of your hand. <laughs> and that Today, tomorrow, when you hit a problem, if you'll trace it back to the root cause, you're going to find out that it was a miscommunication somewhere. So opening up that communication and getting to know all the people as individuals started breaking down those barriers to communication and starts to weld you into a team and starts to build a culture.
1: And so what mechanisms do you recommend people putting into place to prompt communication? Because I realize it, it is both a belief, a culture, and uh, systemic that allows people to communicate.
2: One of the things, and these were things that we did in the Army, and when we started our company, I said, Well, I'm going to try them in the civilian world and <laughs> see what happens, see if they run me out of this place. But we used to do lots of get togethers outside of work. Uh, mm-hmm with kids, with spouses, you know, skating parties, birthday parties, and we'd also do like uh, charitable work in a community for veterans or whatever. And it seemed like when we would, I call that free space. So we would be at a skating party with spouses and kids and that's free space because now you're bouncing into each other. And it doesn't matter what level you are in the company. You're just a family there having fun and you're interacting with the other families. And so you're starting to build that sense of team and you're finding out that, hey, that person in HR is really a pretty nice person. I could probably call them up if I had a problem. Or that person in this other department, you know, I've met them and their spouse. And so now I am I feel like I can call and talk to them. So you're starting that free space just allows a lot of interaction that you wouldn't get in the work environment. And I think when people get back to work and then having those activities outside of work is a good way to pull people together, start creating that sense of team. And then we would put our logo on all types of gifts, swag. And so the kids would have toys in their toy box with our Mustang horse on it. The parents would have shirts and caps and one of the things that we would do in hard copy communication we would send our newsletter to the house and so the spouse would read it and there'd be pictures and the kids would see it and they would know what was going on at the company and if you can start winning the hearts and minds not of just your people but of the family now your employee is much more free to stay work a little late put themselves into their job and you're you're really sucking them in for the long term. They're not going to want to go to another company because this one's working for them as an individual and their family.
1: And that sounds very much like a leverage of the military culture where you lived on base, the families, um, spouses were involved in spouses clubs back then called wives clubs. Uh-huh. Um, and And building that true sense of camaraderie not only with the service member, but also with the family.
2: Exactly. And uh, I didn't know if it would take when I brought it in the civilian world, but uh, we bought all of our furniture at five cents on the dollar from three engineering firms in the offshore oil industry that were going out of business when we started. And so some of this furniture was pretty bad, and the uh, engineer was putting a big book on a bookcase, and the whole thing just collapsed down around him. It was pretty funny, but uh, I went home, and I built a really strong bookcase, and brought it in, and it worked perfect, but we needed like 15 of them, and so I said, hey, anybody want to come to my house this weekend? We'll build bookshelves, and we had like 18 people at the time, and everybody came. Wives came, kids came. We built bookshelves. We stained them. The founders of the company are in cut off shorts and you're and there's just a lot of back and forth talk going on and and we would hear people say wow I've never been at an owner's house and Mm -hmm. there's like real people there talking to me like I'm equal to them and we heard all this stuff we said wow this this could really work so we started having a monthly thing and uh, you know two months into starting when the Oil price went to zero, and we had to go work for the metro bus company. And those things, the people said, "Man, we're going to do whatever they want to do." This is the this is a well connected ownership team, and they're connecting with us. And that was the nucleus that helped us go from three people to six thousand five hundred, from no money to a billion dollars in annual revenue, and then uh, turn it over to second, third, fourth generation to take it to five billion. But it started from that nucleus of, hey, let's get together. Let's get to know each other and open that communication up and build a team that everybody else wants to join.
1: So, Bill, you are the perfect person to ask because you've given the example of 18 people in your garage. Now with 6,500 people are. Or- or thousands of people, how do you maintain that same sense of connection? Because I'm guessing you don't have thousands of people in your garage. <laughs> and, uh, and I can
2: remember a lot of names, but once you get over about 200, <laughs> you're going to see people in the elevator and you won't know who they are. And it was sort of humorful for my partner and I when we were at about 600 people. We had we had our offices on the first floor of a six-story building. And by that time we owned the whole building. And our drafters were on the sixth floor with the views that were awesome. And so hmm. sort of we wanted to be an upside down pyramid where the owners are on the bottom supporting the mid-level people that are supporting the drafters and the secretaries that are getting the work out. And so we actually were in the building that way. And people understood that, you know, we were servant leaders. We were there to give them everything they needed to be successful and, you know, help set up that type of a a company ideology that becomes, you know, then a big driver of the culture.
1: So how, how, I assume that you still have then close gatherings with your top, how many people do you still get together with?
2: Well, we we just had so the company we sold the company in 2000 to the Wood Group out of Aberdeen, Scotland, and okay. uh, but then Mustang became a big driver in taking that company and helping it grow. Uh, we handed off to the CEO we had trained, and then he handed off to Michelle McNichol who I'd helped bring in as a project engineer, helped train her all the way up. And then she became the CEO when we were at about $4 billion a year, just a, a tremendous leader. But now I just stay in communication. I'm pretty much retired. Uh, but the company, one of the things you're asking is how do you keep that culture when you keep growing and what happened is it became hiring was part of it but it's that the people wanted it so bad top to bottom that they all put energy into the culture every day every person did we had sayings we had our mustang blue color we had we had lots of just little culture things that we did like we would change all of the pictures and things at the coffee bar. In downturns at the previous company, the coffee bars were everything spiraled down. Everybody would be talking, hey, where's a job? Where's this? Where's that? Where should we go? And I wanted to make the coffee bar a positive thing. So we'd put pictures up of activities and things that are coming up. And so people would have something positive to talk about at the coffee bar, and then that positive feeling would go down the hallway. Oil companies would come into Mustang and from the receptionist actually from the parking garage we had pictures in the parking garage that would put a smile on anybody's face and you just change their attitude they come into the company the receptionist is pumped up excited gets them connected they walk down any hall they're just seeing smiling faces and people are saying hello and they can feel the energy and uh, international companies would come in and they'd say man, you just can't get this at at a Bechtel or a Brown and Root or a Fleur. And at that time, we're at 1,000 people. We're at 2,000 people. But it it was self-generating. So initially, the three owners, we had to put all the energy in. But once uh-huh. we got to about 50 or 60 people and people were loving it, then the energy was coming from the people to keep it alive.
1: So... I worked years ago with an Air Force client, and one of the things he said is, you know, I get all this positive culture stuff, and it's nice to do, but I need to see the data that shows that it'll drive our organization to be more effective, or doesn't matter if I like it, we're not going to do it. I've got to get an ROI. It Uh, sounds like you saw an ROI.
2: Oh, big time. We were... We were four times as profitable as any of our competitors in Houston in the oil patch or in the hydrocarbon industry. Because we ended up going into eight different industries hydrocarbon, all the way to automotive and industrial. And in every case when we went into that industry, they would tell us, hey, your gung ho culture it's not going to be like in an upstream offshore world where you changed it you're not going to be able to do that in downstream refining but every industry we went into we used the seven steps that i talk about in culture code champions and within a year to 15 months we were getting friendly contracts the uh, clients were part of our team the suppliers were part of our team and we changed those industries and how they worked so I know that it works, I know it can be done. It does take some focus and energy, but once you get everybody pulling the load, it's, it's sort of self-generating.
1: And has the payback that people are, are expecting to see. It's not just nice to do. Let's go on break now, and we will be back with Maureen Metcalf and Bill Higgs talking about the Culture Code Champion, Seven Steps to Scale and Succeed in Your Business. You're with Bill Higgs and Maureen Metcalf, and today we're talking about Culture Code Champions, seven steps to scale and succeed in your business. Now, Bill, before break, we were talking about the ROI for culture. Let's hit that briefly, and then let's go into what are your seven steps.
2: Yes, uh, as I was saying, we were four times as profitable as anybody else in our industry, and we ended up going into eight different industries. And that bottom line profitability came from two main things. One was a lack of turnover. So in most companies uh, in the Houston area, and even I've found across the world, there's 35 to 45% turnover annually. New hires, 60% of new hires don't make it to six months 70% 70% don't make it to a year. When I go so, through this the seven steps, I'll show you what we did on bringing people in, how we hired them, but our turnover was less than 2% in most years. Now if, if you I, Yes, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say that's a huge cost, especially yes. if your industry is 60 to 70%. Even for 10%, especially if you're talking about people who are driving the business results. When they're missing, stuff doesn't get done.
2: Yeah, and so what happens is two things when you reduce turnover. One is it costs you, I don't know, fifteen dollars to $25,000 per person when you have to replace them. And so if you're replacing new hires after six months, you lost a big chunk of money. If you replace somebody after three years, it's a chunk of money. The other thing that happens is every time you bring a new person in, your really good old hands have to train that person in how you work. So you're making your good, efficient people less efficient, and you're bringing in new people who are less efficient. So your efficiency has dropped. So, imagine if you can be at 2% or less than 5% turnover, now you've got teams that have been working together back to back to back to back. Your repeatable process, it's ingrained in them. You don't have all kinds of procedures they have to go look and figure out. They just know how. what we said in the Army is move, shoot, communicate. They know how to move, shoot, communicate with their other people they're working with, and they've been cross-trained And you don't lose that value. So we had people stay 30 years, 30 plus years, and never moved, even though there were 100 other engineering firms in Houston that they could go to. So the seven steps really help you create that huge bottom line. As I said, for us, it was four times, but it can easily double. And all it takes is that you have to be intentional about building this culture.
1: So let's go in, what's the first step?
2: First step we talked about in session one and that's to open up the communication top to bottom, get talking to people, have activities, get free space. Simplest one you can do, well, right now everybody's at the house, is you can do a company cookbook where each family pulls one or two of their best recipes that they got from grandma or whoever and they put pictures of the kids and they talk a little bit about that recipe and their family. And you can put together a cookbook, but it's, again, it's bringing everybody together. It's an outside function. When you get back in the office, do a paper airplane contest. Costs no money, can have a ton of fun with it. But open up the communication, start pulling people in together. That's the first step. Second step is to create a sense of team and belonging. And that's where I say create the team everybody else wants to join. Some of that comes from having these swag and gifts. We would have uh, the gift fairy come around at 2 in the morning and just put things on people's desks. Right now during COVID, we're mailing things to people's houses and it just shows up and you put a smile on their face. You can put smiles on faces and create memories both within the work environment for the employee and For the spouse and the family, if you can create smiles and memories, you're totally differentiating from your competition. And so that's step number two is to create that sense of team. Name yourselves. If you don't have a name for yourself, you're missing a big thing. We were Mustang engineering, but we called ourselves Mustangers. And once you became a Mustanger you felt that you were the best team. It's sort of like being in the Rangers in the Army. You know you're the best of the best and that everybody wants to be with you. So name yourselves. If you're just in a project within a company, name your project team. We had a lot of project teams that did all the same things we did for the company, the same seven steps. They did them within their project to create a good culture.
1: Cool. Step three.
2: Step three is to create a repeatable process. We talked a little bit about that, mm-hmm. but it's you have to be able to create those efficiencies by having a repeatable process that gets 80% of the work done and then be adaptable for the outlier types of work that come in to mess with you. But creating that repeatable process allows your people to be successful time after time after time.
1: Okay, so step four. I know we're going through this quickly just so that people can hear what all seven are.
2: Yeah, see, and and you can see that they sort of tie together. Step four is hard copy communication. And I had mentioned that we would send the uh, newsletter home hard copy. Uh, Amazing results happen from that. But hard copy communication is also the things that you put up on the walls in the coffee bar. So a lot of coffee bars, you go and look, and it's the rules and regulations for HR. Go put those in some dark corner of the hallway and put the fun stuff up at the coffee bar. We also put fun stuff up in every conference room. We put it in stairwells. Our receptionist had fun stuff that she would hand out to people coming in, but hard copy the swag that we would give out. There's a Facebook page of old Mustangers showing swag that they've got 15 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, Hard copy also, I would go into a person's office and they wouldn't be there. And I'd just write them a little note or on a picture of them, I'd write them a note. And 20 years later, these people are still emailing me and say, man, you brightened my day when you gave me this note. So you don't know what effect you'll have. You don't know what is happening with them and within their family. But if you can always have that positive attitude and get your leadership doing it, top to bottom, it just, again, self-perpetuates a different way of working with each other.
1: You know, that's what I'm hearing underlying everything you've said, is it's positive and constructive. It's not delusional that we don't have issues, but you're finding ways to be positive even amidst disruption and personal struggles.
2: Totally, and I I think that's leadership 101 at West Point is, uh, they say, when the first bullet is fired, the plan changes. I always say in the civilian world, the big stone rolls and crushes the plan, so you better have a good attitude and be adaptable and ready to move with it.
1: Perfect. So let's move to five, and if we have time at the end, I want to come back to the positive attitude.
2: Yeah, the fifth one is to sell while the shop is full. And this rubs people the wrong way, especially in small businesses. They'll get loaded up with work and they'll stop selling because they want to make sure they keep their reputation by putting out good work. But, And I think they'll know after this pandemic, nobody cares if your company survives. They would like to. Your clients like you, your suppliers like you, but they can't invest in your company and help your company survive. That's on you. You have to do it. And so that's why I say sell while the shop is full. And what that does is that provides job security. If your people don't feel job security, you are not going to be able to interest them in culture. (laughs) I can guarantee it. If they're worried about their job, they're not worried about engaging in your culture they're on the phone trying to find their next job so what I tried to do from day one is I called it job on the corner of the desk I would go to into each drafter each engineer and I would put a job on the corner of their desk and I'd say would you hurry up and finish that job you're on and get over to this one imagine if you're in a downturn the whole industry's in a shambles and this person knows if they finish this job, they've got the next one. That's job security. And that frees a person up. They don't have to worry about their mortgage, their family, their car. They can say, oh, I can focus on work and I can get engaged in this culture. This is a different type of company.
1: You know, as we were talking, I got a text uh, from one of my business partners saying s- someone who is close to both of us just got laid off. Mm. It. it this is such a relevant topic that, and I'm, I'm glad you touched on it, that all this culture stuff is nice to do, but not relevant if I don't think I'm going to have a job next week.
2: Let me give you a quick example. We had gotten too many jobs one Friday, so I called one of the clients up, set up a meeting for Tuesday morning to go and turn down his project because we had too much. So I go with the project manager down there, we walk back to his office and he's got eight people in his office at his conference table. So I motion for him to come out in the hall and I say, Pete, what you got going on? He says, oh, I've got everybody here for the kickoff meeting for the project. And I said, oh, we were coming down to turn the project down because we got too much going on. So it's sort of like time to dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And I said, well, Pete, your job's very easy and because I've cross-trained everybody in my company, if we would define the equipment in a kickoff meeting right now, I could just put it into purchasing with no engineering. We go out for bids. By the time the bids come in, I'd have engineering available we just sort of do the project a little bit in reverse. And hes and he was a very experienced guy. So he said, yeah, let's do it. So we had that kickoff meeting. A little embarrassing when we went back to the office and said, Can't send a salesman to turn down a job. That's not going to work. But we did that job for 60% of our estimate because we did just what we needed to do to get it done. So that selling while the shop is full rolls right into creating repeatable process, rolls right into creating efficiencies, rolls right into keeping your people happy and comfortable that they can stay there.
1: Fabulous. We have only four minutes left. You've got two more steps and we want to do wrap up. So let's do six and seven quickly.
2: Yeah. So six is the biggie. Six is hiring the right people. And you've got to get people with your DNA. So you can't just have HR out there looking at resumes. I'll tell you how we did it. We were Mustang. We were a horsey company. So we called it Operation Horse Thief. And what we did, we had new hire breakfast, so we'd bring in new people, we'd go, we'd have a breakfast at tables and chairs, and we'd have management team there, get a lot of cross-fertilization and talking, and we'd go around the tables, and everybody would say what they did at Mustang or what they were going to do if they were a new hire. Then we asked each new hire, who are the five best people you've ever worked with in this industry? And those would go on our list for Operation Horse Thief. Identify the horses and go get them. And so that referral hiring, I swear, it was the secret sauce and going from zero to a billion dollars. And the seventh step is, is to give back to the community. And so we've okay. talked about that a little bit. But giving back, uh, it'll come back to you tenfold, the things that we did.
1: Okay, so I would love to hear more, but I think we need to go to wrap up. Um, How will people learn more about this? How would they find you? What next?
2: Well, the key thing is to go to culturecodechampions.com. And so what I've tried to do is we created the seven-step process for creating a culture, and we used it in eight different industries. We used it in 12 international offices worked great internationally. And so at CultureCodeChampions.com, there's information there. And in the book, it's all set up to where you can self-implement these steps. And all I say is you have to assign a champion. So start with step one, assign a champion, go six or eight weeks until that's working, and they've got some help. And then assign a champion to step two. And we would always have a little ceremony when we were signing a champion, and they would get a person to help them. But then you can self-implement this culture. There's no tricks to it. It just has to come from the heart, and you've got to believe in people.
1: Beautiful. So leaders need to be aware of their organization's culture. And be evaluating where the culture is succeeding and failing, and you give us the seven steps to be looking at. And you've talked about some of the keys being having enough work, so sell when the shop is full, and hiring the right people. And then creating this sense of a positive environment where we know that collectively we can communicate, pull together, and solve problems. And you've said you're. Website is culturecodechampions.com? Correct. Cool. Any other contact information before I hit uh, wrap?
2: I think think that's the key. At culturecodechampions.com, there's an assessment you can do to assess your culture. And there's also a cost calculator to where you can calculate the bottom line improvement you can have. So you can go sell this to management. It doesn't cost very much at all to implement, But big savings to the bottom line.
1: Fabulous. Bill, thank you so much. I love that you are giving our listeners very practical tools that will help them take this forward, especially in a time where budgets are being squeezed. So this is, again, Maureen Metcalf and Bill Higgs. And we are talking about the seven steps to scale and succeed in your business, the Culture Code Champions. Thank you to our listeners for continuing to engage with us. Please email me your feedback, info at innovateleader.com. Connect on LinkedIn, Maureen Metcalf, or Facebook, in Innovating Leadership. We love to hear what you think and take your recommendations seriously. We trust that you will find this valuable, and we look forward to you joining us again in the future.